Hello and welcome to The Better Business Show with me, Tom Idle. Thanks for tuning in. Coming up this week. There's something immoral about having somebody work for you and give you their time and their skills and to not pay them. I think there's something there's something wrong about that. Yeah, we're in the company this week of Heidi Raymond from Rosen Willard, the pioneering fashion brand that actually pays its interns. Stay tuned. Yes, yes, yes. Welcome back. 25, episode 25 of the Better Business Show. Uh, thanks for coming back to us if you're uh, a regular listener. If you're new to the show, thanks for tuning in and uh, we hope you enjoy it and come back to us in subsequent weeks. Um, so yes, uh, usual format for you this week with a slight twist. Uh, we're going to hit you with another fantastic uh, story in the shape of uh, Heidi Raymond at Rose and Willard. All of that coming up. I was away last week, so we set Vicky Knowles to work in, in meeting this week's guest, Heidi, and, and she recorded that conversation. Fascinating it is too. Um, so no news roundup this week because uh, obviously I was away, I was busy, and uh, and uh, we'll, we'll get back onto that next week with, with Victoria as well. Um, plus, this week we're going to kick off a brand new segment of the show. We're going to be exploring some thoughts, provocations, and big ideas for a sustainable future with the brilliant Joss Tantrum. Uh, more on that later. Um, Thanks to everybody that, that gets in touch each week and uh, and gives us a, a call out on social media and, and shares the show. Really appreciate you doing that. Uh, just a few notes really before we, we get stuck into this week's show. You can sign up to our newsletter. Uh, just go to betterbusiness.show, which is our homepage on the Narrative Matters website for the Better Business Show. Scroll down beneath each of our episodes, all previous uh, 24, 25 episodes on there now for you to have a listen to. Uh, but if you scroll down beneath those, there is a simple box. Just give us your email address and you'll start getting our, our weekly newsletter. Don't forget you can subscribe to the show via iTunes. Uh, just search for The Better Business Show and you'll get, this, uh, get us on iTunes. Uh, I'm sure many of you find the show each week on uh, social media and then you arrive at the Narrative Matters website uh, where we host the shows. Uh, but you can also find us on a number of different apps uh, for your smartphone, whether it's uh, an, I, um, uh, an iPhone or a, an Android phone. Uh, SoundCloud is a, a good place. That's where we, we host the, the, the podcast. Um, but you can also find us on, on Deezer, uh, on Stitcher, and on TuneIn. These are all different app services where you can you can find the podcast and, and, and subscribe and, and listen uh, that way as well. <coughs> Now, if you're an organization looking for a fresh new way to tell stories and engage with our incredible audience here on The Better Business Show, then we'd love to invite new partners to join us on this journey. Uh, so if you fancy becoming a commercial partner of The Better Business Show, please do uh, do, do give me a shout, uh, give me a call, give me an email or a tweet and get in touch. All the details are on the website. Uh, the easiest way is to, to email me, tomidle at narrativematters.co.uk. Um, right, let's get on with this week's show. So this week, uh, we sent Vicky Knowles off to to carry out the main storytelling uh, of this week's show. Uh, I feel like I really missed out, actually, because we had a great guest in the the, the form of Heidi Raymond, who's the, the founder and managing director of Rose and Willard, which is an ethical and, and feminist British women's wear brand uh, based in, in London. 
Uh, and this is a company which has made pieces for the likes of Jennifer Aniston and Pippa Middleton and Gemma Arterton. Uh, and it's aiming to kind of lead a trend towards a more transparent, uh, fairer women's wear and fashion industry in general. This is also a company with the lowest carbon footprint in the whole fashion industry on account of the fact that it designs, it cuts patterns, it makes samples, it makes and distributes all of its products from one location in South Bermondsey in South London. Uh, so no long complex supply chain, something we've talked about a lot on the show. And this is also uh, a company which is the only fashion house in London that actually pays its interns. Um, because it basically values their talent and, um, and sees them as a valuable part of the business. This is also a company that is pioneering positive body image and making use of non-model models, despite pressure from the industry to use thinner models and to supply samples in a size 6. And this is also a company that is always looking to source materials that are different, such as fish leather. I'll let Vicky Knowles take up the story with Heidi Raymond. Heidi, thanks so much for being on the Better Business Show today. My pleasure, thank you. You're welcome. Now, we've chatted in the past, but for those who don't know Rose and Willard, can you tell us what it is in a nutshell? Uh, Rose and Willard is a British professional women's wear brand, uh, predominantly. We are an ethical, honest brand. We're very proud of our British manufacturing. I would say that I, you know, we believe that we have... Uh, the lowest carbon footprint in the fashion industry. We design in one place, we produce in one place, we distribute from one place, which I think is critical given fashion is the world's second most polluting industry after oil. We don't compromise on quality. The fabrics that we use are the same fabrics that you'll find by very high-end luxury designers. Um, our quality is second to none, which is you know underlined by our British manufacturing um, and we are eth ethical and we are honest and we like to source sustainable materials where we can. Um, where we have an open door policy. People who want to come and see how we operate are very welcome to come and visit us. Uh, so, yes, I think we're, we're, you know, we, we, we just want to sort of be an open and honest um, company, really. That's amazing. Um, so many things to jump off from there. Um, so am I right in thinking Rosen Willard's been about, around for about two years now? Yes, we launched at the end of September 2014. Um, we sort of set up shop and set up the studio, uh, you know, about nine, ten months beforehand. So we've not been going for, for, for that long. Uh, mm -hmm. And prior to being in Rose and Willard, I had a completely different life working in the city. So it's been a it's been a very steep learning curve for me, but it's been it's been very very interesting and a lot of fun. Yeah, I, that's exactly what I, I wanted to ask you about. Actually, um, you've got a pretty interesting backstory in a very different industry. So uh, yeah, tell us what made you made the leap. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, I was uh, I was working I was working as a stockbroker uh, for almost fourteen years. I would like to just underline that not all bankers are bad, uh, mm -hmm. and I and I was very much aware in my own professional life, that it was very difficult to find the clothes that really women need to convey professionalism, but also that where you don't lose your identity. And I think there was a lot of, there's a lot of high street, British does high, you know, the, the, the British women's wear market does high street very, very well. Um, but I think one of the problems with high street is, you know, it, which is communicated in the price, is that the quality is not always there, and it, sometimes it's a bit too trend-heavy. 
which really wasn't something that was working for me. At the same time, I didn't have the disposable income to be wearing high-end luxury every single day. So mm. I realized there was a gap in the market. And this coincided with the fact that I'd reached a point in my career where you know, I was a top-ranked broker and I needed to sort of take the next step. And I thought, well, either I move into a different sort of, you know, arena within the within the bank, you know, for example, management, or do I try and do something different? So I decided to take the leap. And one of the important things for me was, you know, I wanted to set up a, a, a business in, in the UK. I wanted to be fair in the way that I set, set up that business. And I wanted to produce... Uh, products that I thought one that the customer wanted, and secondly that they were you know high quality. So you you, you know so people would go to those products. There would be easy go to items that people would rewear and rewear and rewear rather than buy something and throw it away. Because I'm very conscious of of, of, of how damaging throwaway fashion is, and I'm sure a lot of our customers are as well. So. That was what was important to me when I set this up, and uh, it's definitely been a, an interesting journey. Mm, so you talk about um, you're kind of the middle ground for you know people who want quality but they can't afford sort of the luxury market. So how do you make such high quality clothing that can be affordable? I think the first thing we do is we don't invest in in, in expensive overheads. Our, our, our studio is very modest. You know, we're in we're in a um, in a studio studio in South London. We're actually right, not far from Millwall's football club, uh, so we're not. We you know we don't we don't invest in in expensive uh, trophy shops. We're not going to do that. We 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 try to keep our overheads as lean as we possibly can in order to invest in the product. So the product can be the best it can possibly be. Um, so I think that that's probably really our fundamental underlying principle, and that's something that we will always commit to. So I'm asked often, you know, what's the next step? Do you want to have a shop? Do you want to have, you know, what is it, how is it you want to move forward from, from selling online? Mm. And I think, you know, we will invest in, uh, you know, we will have pop-ups because of the flexibility and the low-cost nature of pop-ups, but we won't invest in high cost fixed assets and big trophy shops because ultimately the customer ends up paying for that and mm. I'd rather the customer was paying for the product um, in a way that is as environmentally friendly as possible um, rather than rather than paying for, for for us to have a you know really sort of nice swanky shop. Yeah absolutely um, sort of a similar model to Tom Cridlin we were just speaking before we started this podcast that you're you're sort of friends um, and we yes. had him on the show as well. Um, yes. So you said earlier that one of the interesting things I wanted to talk to you about is you've made the bold claim of lowest carbon footprint in the fashion industry. So why do you think this is the case? And indeed, how can a fashion house attain a low carbon footprint? I think the, fir the first thing that we, we, you know, we, we consider, and I, I sort of learned this, what I didn't realise when I entered this industry, because the, you know, the processes and the technicality of the of, of, of making a garment was something that was new to me. But when you design something, you go through a process, you design something, it's a sketch, then it goes to the pattern cutter, they create a pattern, and then you create samples. And then you need to go to a factory to really, for, for the factory to then start producing that particular product. But you, the factory has to produce a sample, that has to be approved. Then you go into production. Production is then you know, completed and also during that process you have quality control 
and only when that is you know of, of, a, of an acceptable standard by the brand do you then have distribution going to either your own warehouse facilities or somehow going to your uh, you know wherever you 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 know you're selling your product it could be wholesale it could be you know to to, to wherever it's going mm-hmm. so there's a lot of toing and froing that that goes on and you know the sample process is an example you know you have to get that sample exactly right with the factory then there's a lot of qc and so you know what what i realized even though we were initially making mostly in the uk in london but also some in Poland, some in Portugal. There was a lot of toing and froing, so it's quite surprising um, how much, how, how many air miles, or you know, how, how much travel you do between each each region. And if you've got a global supply chain, say for instance you're a British brand and you're producing out in Southeast Asia, for example, that's an awful lot of air miles before you've even made the product. So. You know, what we decided was actually let's bring it as close to home as we possibly can. So let's design on site. Let's do all our pattern cutting on site. Let's make our samples, get excellent machinists, make our samples on site. And let's produce on site. And let's have our warehousing on site. Let's do all our photography on site insofar as we possibly can if we're not doing some location photography. Mm-hmm. And, and let's just try and, and, and bring all of those air miles and centralise them. Uh, and I do get asked often, you know, well, if you grow, then that becomes quite difficult because to what extent can you grow within a single location? Mm. And that's obviously something I have to bear in mind. But even if I were to expand production, I would keep it as close to home as I possibly can because, you know, the, the, the number of air miles that, that a, a brand can, you know, consume especially in, in, you know, when we have global supply chains, is, is extraordinary. So I think we need to really, you know, really, really be aware of this. And that's, that's, why, we, that's why we claim we have the, the industry's lowest fashion carbon, um, the lowest carbon footprint in the fashion industry. Mm, that's interesting. Um, obviously, as you say, like for bigger fashion brands, it makes it more difficult to do that. But are there mm. any other uh, downsides to doing it on site? Is it hard to find all the expertise you need to have in one place? I think that's that's definitely um, one of the one of the challenges is finding a you know highly skilled uh, machinist and we have found highly skilled machinists um, and we were very lucky to do that. I think that's probably one of the you know the the, the biggest challenges is finding that skill set. Um, and then I think the other downside or the other risk for certainly for a startup is well it adds fixed costs because mm. you've always got your machinist sitting there so you need to have you need to develop some. Um, you, you know, you, you need to make sure that your your machinists are being fully utilised for as for as long as possible. Uh, so what we do is when we have a bit of downtime, we'll be taking a bit of sample work for other smaller designers. So we've recently just done some for a couple of designers, um, and we look at sort of helping people out if they just want one or two garments here and there. We we have students who approach us for their graduate fashion week. So it's a it's a nice we're building up a nice little community. But it's when we're, um, you know, when when we, you know, when we've got the, the the downtime, we look to sort of find other ways to to help other people as well, which I think, is, which which I think is quite positive. That's such a great idea. Um, and when you said students, there, it just uh, reminded me about that you you're also one of the only fashion houses, if not the only one, um, to pay that to pay your interns. Um, so what's the business decision behind that? Well, I think it's just you know I, I've always thought that it's there's, there's something 
immoral about having somebody work for you and give you their time and their skills and to not pay them. I think there's something there's something wrong about that. And so I decided if somebody's going to work for me, they are going to be paid. Um, and that's obviously difficult for a startup mm. uh, to do because you've got to find the funds. The other thing is that, it, you know, the real positive to it is that it rationalises your hiring um, process because you don't, you all of a sudden don't, don't have the luxury of having 10 free people. You have to say, okay, well, I can have one. But the benefit of that is that the person who comes to work for you will not be competing with nine other people to bag the best experience. They'll actually get the experience that they want. Mm -hmm. They'll also be, you know, sort of um, invested in the company and value their presence there. There won't be a sense of resentment because they think, goodness, I'm doing all of this work and I'm doing it for free. Mm. So you kind of get a mutual benefit from it. And I think that's a that's been a real positive. We've actually had a number of in interns who have started with us and have developed their skill set and have moved on and become, you know, permanent members of the company. And that, that's been a real boon because, you know, finding, hiring new people is always, there's always a risk associated with that. So if you find someone, you know, who's young and hungry and has, you know, has, has the qualifications, you know, you can really, you can really benefit from that. So I think that's, that's really, you know, that's really important to us. So it's a great way to find future talent. It is, it is, because I, you know, and I think one of the one of the risks of having free interns, I think the the major downside is that it creates elitism, because if you if you're a student and you've just graduated, the likely the likely situation for you is that you will have student debt. Mm. So you'll have student debt. You know, how do you then fund, you know, a, a working in a role where you are not being paid because you won't have access to, to debt finance because you've already got debt. So banks are probably going to be unwilling to lend you money, especially if you then don't have any income to pay off that debt. So unless you have a wealthy parents or some other wealthy sponsor, how do you then get into the industry? And getting into the industry without an internship is pretty much impossible, from my understanding. So you, you really are going to be stuck in a very difficult situation. So it does create elitism and as an example we had one one person who worked with us and she was working as a waitress and her mother was a single parent nurse and this you know the, the, this this girl who came to work with us she she really she said look I can't afford to work for free and I said well you're not going to be working for free uh, so you know I paid her and she did extraordinarily well she was you know committed she was you know, she worked very hard. She showed that she had talent and she became our product developer uh, over time. You know, it took her nine months. And when I said to her, you know, why don't you become our product developer? Because our product developer was leaving. And she said, oh, I don't know if I've got, you know, the experience or I don't know if I can do it. And I said, I'm sitting right next to you. You can do it. Mm. And she did do it and she proved herself. And she's now working for a big brand uh, because she, that was ultimately her, always going to be her goal. And she wrote me the loveliest thank you at the end, saying I could never have got into the industry if I hadn't have worked at Rosen Willard. So it, that, that to me is, that makes it all worth it. And, she, you know, I'm sure the company she's working for is benefiting greatly from, from her talent. Oh, that's so amazing. And as, as a young person myself, I, I really appreciate it when, um, you know, companies are actually doing paid internships. It just, yes. it just seems so rare, which is just, Yes. outrageous really um so let's talk a bit about your products you've got 
a few innovative fabrics on the go, like fish leather. So yes. why did you choose that instead of traditional leather? And what other uh, innovative fabrics have you got? We came across fish leather because we had a, a, a designer from Iceland who worked with us for a short while, and she introduced it to us. And what we found was that this fish leather... Um, was was actually the byproduct of um, the food industry. So these skins were ordinarily just going to be thrown away. Um, they came from sustainable fisheries, and um, the the uh, uh, the leather supplier would just buy up these skins, treat them, uh, and and then sell them. And you know they're all none of them are endangered species. We use salmon leather when we use cod leather, and also salmon leather as long as it's not it doesn't have a metallic finish, it's washable which is just wonderful, and our customers certainly appreciate that. So it was, it was an interesting way to sort of look at something that's different, and also it kind of looks like snake skin, but it feels like suede, and it's as soft as a fabric. So it's a very interesting material and gives you a really interesting sort of, you know, uh, sort of trim for a, for, for a piece. So we've used it for lapels. Uh, on jackets, we use it as, as, as trims on pockets and things. So it's really quite an interesting... Uh, sort of, you know, material to work with. Uh, so, you know, we're always looking for new and interesting fabrics that will, you know, they, they've got some, you know, they've, they've either got a really positive history like the sustainability of of this fish leather or they have really, you know, they really do have durability so they last long so you can wash them uh, and, and, you, you know, you, they're not going to fall apart and you'll keep them. That's really where we come from. Mm. Now, I remember um, last time we spoke, I think mm. you were looking into fabrics that were, I think it was like odour decreasing or, or you wouldn't sweat as much in it. So like a woman can go, you know, mm. from the office on the tube to her meeting yeah. and not have to worry about um, what she's wearing, really, you know, that it will sort of look after her during the day. Yes. Yes, there are, there are a number of... Um, mills we found some in japan we found some in switzerland uh, and they do this um, some amazing fabrics like our trench coat uh, actually has uh, it, it's a it's a waterproof trench coat entirely waterproof and also you know it does have this sort of wicking um, uh, capability so, so it, 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 it's breathable so it keeps it keeps you keeps you dry and it wicks away your, your sweat without retaining those odors. One of the things that we find uh, is that there's a lot of polyester in the market, and you know there's a, there's a reason there's a lot of polyester generally in in the entire market is because it does um, does it does you know it it is so durable. Mm. But one of the problems with polyester is that the, the the fibers are woven so tightly that if you as soon as you get odors in the in that fabric, it's very difficult difficult to get them to to to, to get rid of them. So we look for for technical fibres that will wick away your sweat, perform in some other way, either they are waterproof or, or, or stain resistant or whatever it is, and also that they, uh, uh, you know, that they won't, they won't retain your, your rodents and they're natural fibres. So we look for a lot of those. So our, our trench coat is actually uh, mostly made of cotton, so it's nice and breathable. Mm. Um, but it has all these other wonderful qualities. So we're, we're you know, we're we're always on the lookout for these fabrics, and we found some wonderful fabrics from Japan, uh, which are, I mean, it look they look like silk. They're 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 extraordinary, um, and they're crease resistant, and they're washable, and they're beautiful. So look out in uh, autumn winter sixteen for some of those. So I'm thinking, if any of our audience have heard of you, it might have been because 
Rose and Willow was actually in the media a lot in February, I think it was. Yes. Um, because you introduced a contractual clause requiring your models to eat. Um, so tell us more about that. Uh, yes, we, Rose and Willard, we, we, um, we uh, released a press, uh, a, a press statement saying that we would contractually require any professional model who worked with us to eat with us. Now, that was, there was a bit of misinterpretation by some areas of the press who thought we were going to start force-feeding models, which is obviously, oh God. <laughs> obviously not our intention at all. Yeah. Um, but what the, the, the reasoning behind it was that when I first set up this business, and we had someone who was working at the studio with us, who was from a, you know, previously had worked at a very reputable um, modelling agency, one of the mo- most well-known modelling agencies, and he said, "You have to see all these other, you know, you have to sort of do a casting and see some professional models." So we did a casting, um, and you know, to, to my surprise, you know, you you expect these models to you know, to, to look like goddesses, to walk in and look, you know, the, like the, the most amazing things you've ever seen. Mm. And they don't. They're young and they're tall. They're very thin, but they don't... There isn't this amazing beauty. So you, you then accept the fact that there's a lot of hair, makeup, Photoshop, all of the stuff that goes into it. But we did two uh, photo shoots, test photo shoots, uh, with, with two models on different days. On both occasions, neither model would eat. And... It's a it's a full day, it's 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 physically demanding. You're moving around a lot. You're changing constantly. Mm. Um, you know, there's, there's there's a fair amount of work that goes into it, and they refused food. And you know, it was it, it for me. I actually felt quite uncomfortable because we're all sitting together at lunchtime, and there's one person who's just not not willing to eat anything. And I sort of pressed them on it, and on both occasions, they both said that they were under pressure to lose weight. One of them said that she was casting for a Paris catwalk show, so she her words were, I can't afford to eat, um, which I found really disheartening. And then um, the second model, she was there, she didn't eat anything all day, and it got to about 3 o'clock, and she was becoming delirious. She was starting mm. to... I mean, she was talking gibberish. There's no other word for it, really. She wasn't making any sense, so we had to put her in a cab and send her home. And at that point, I thought, well, do I really want to have professional models um, working with us? So I opted for what we call our non-model models, who are women that come from a variety of backgrounds. They're not professional models, but they represent aspiration, and also they are women that we think our customers can relate to. So we had an actress, we've got a freelance PR, there's a clown, there's a dancer... Um, you know, we've got a variety of women. And then, um, you know, the, 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 the feedback, you know, the, the response to that was was very interesting because it was very sort of, um, you know, it was, it, was, it was binary in a lot of ways because some people thought it was great and other people thought it was, it was terrible. And even some customers would say, well, they're not really models, uh, which was quite surprising. Uh, so at that point, we, we took advice from, from sort of some industry insiders who said, look, you really need to have professional models on your site. So for the spring summer 16 campaign we decided to have a professional model but we insisted that she had to eat with us and she did. Uh, and she was a you know she was very lovely to work with. Uh, and we have found that there are some modeling agencies who are very keen to work with us on the basis that we do this. Uh, so you know even though we're in contravention to the industry and some people have you know some of the feedback that we've had on the back of this has been quite negative. 
you know, we're sticking with it. And and one question I had from one chap was if you, you know, if part of your ethos is to be empowering, how is it empower, empowering to require someone contractually to eat? And I said, well, this is an industry where women are under pressure to lose weight. They're under pressure to... To, to, to not be themselves to a large degree and, and to, to, to put themselves under that pressure. We're actually saying we're giving you the opportunity to reject it. So we do feel that we are empowering the women who work with us. And in any event, I wouldn't want a, a model to work with us if she felt uncomfortable eating. So, you know, the, 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 the models that we want working with us are the women that feel comfortable about their bodies. Um, and, and, you know, and I think that will be, that will, will be reflected in the imagery that we that we, um, you know, publish eventually. Yeah, it's, it seems so balmy that your your um, customers rejected the idea of non, non-model models, as it were. Mm. Um, but yeah, it seems like kind of, I'd say more of a safety net that there's this clause in place that, you know, oh, they, they sort of have to, so they, you know, I'd say that's, I would say that's empowering, but there you go. Um, so I think off the back of it, you've, you've, been even more recently you've been in the media quite a lot and sort of doing talks on on body positivity um and stuff so it seems like you've almost become a bit of a a role model well that's very kind of you to say but I mean I, I I get approached quite a quite a lot I found that I was being approached a lot by sort of young women even young men as well who would say to me I'd get messages on LinkedIn just saying well you know, I've got this situation in my career or, you know, I'd like to just sort of talk about where I am, how do I get promoted, et cetera, et cetera. So you've got professionals who are interested in how I did what I did in my previous life, as well as people who are interested in what I'm currently doing, people who are interested in, well, how do you set up a company? Um, you know, how do you, how did you do, I don't know, how did you find your website providers? How did you do all this sort of stuff? And then also the ethics of the business, the sustainability, the body positivity is a big, is a big talking point. Um, because I think women feel it very keenly. Men do as well now, I think. And we are very much of the view that we don't want to create an us and them with men. We, you know, we're, we're not just a women's wear brand exclusively focused on women. We, we, we believe in integration and, you know, creating a, a you know a, a community, a, a you know a nice community. So, I you know I get asked to do a number of talks. So I was doing a talk at Fashion SVP on Tuesday with regard to sourcing. How do you you know find the right suppliers mm. uh, and uh, and hiring? Uh, and then um, I'm speaking at an event next week, and then we've got a whole raft of other events. So to some extent, we're more than just a women's wear brand. We're a services company as well, which is a uh, which is which is which is great, but companies are now, you know, we see the evolution whether it's through social media or whether it's through any of these, you know, these other platforms that we now use. Is that you know companies don't just sell products anymore. Mm. Um, companies now have to be much more. I think you know it's a, it's about a lifestyle. It's about a community, um, and I think the other thing which is you know really. I, I, you know, we see that our customers value from us is that there's a lot of cynicism about corporates out there, whether it's because of, you know, some of the larger corporates not paying corporation tax or there's mistrust generally in the market about companies. That when you're open and honest and you say, look, this is who we are and, you know, you can you can, you can can come and visit us and see who we are, people, people 
you know, people are very positive about that, I think. So mm. it's, you know, and, and it's always nice, you know, it's, it's very important to be as close to your customer as you can. Um, and we're always, you know, happy to listen to what people say. I mean, you know, I, I regularly ask for feedback from my customers, my contacts. What is it you want to see? What is it we can do for you? Um, mm. And I think people value that because it is it is important. Okay, so you you've got lots of talks going on. You've you've got your open door policy. What's what's next for Heidi Raymond and Rose and Willard? Do you think? Well, I think you know the next thing is autumn winter sixteen. I mean, we're we're the process now of sort of refining our product, really sort of drilling down what it is that we're going to look like. So one of the one of the real benefits of making everything in house is that we can be nimble. Uh, so the only real bottleneck for us is the lead time to get the fabric because once we've got the fabric we can design something very quickly and we can we can um you know we can we can make a pattern and we can produce it and get it on the site pretty quickly so uh we've we're we're in the process of sort of you know finalizing autumn winter 16 and getting it ready uh to be on the site so that's that's it's currently in production on our site uh, uh, you know at the at the at the studio right now, so we're quite excited about that, and that's going to look quite different to what we've done. We're also doing some bespoke and made-to-measure, so we've got one celebrity, I can't tell you who it is yet, but she oh. is, she's out in the stratosphere, um, uh, and we are making something bespoke for her, so we're doing, we're, you know, we're offering made-to-measure, and we've seen some interest in that, so that's that's probably one of the most interesting um sort of developments that we've had in the studio. So, you know, one of the interesting things that I see a lot of debate about fast fashion, and fast fashion is normally associated with garment worker exploitation or seen as being a high street evil. But actually the real meaning, the real business meaning behind fast fashion is that how quick can you get something to market? Mm-hmm. And that's what we do because our, because our supply chain is as short as it is. Mm-hmm. So we are probably as fast fashion as you can get, but we are ethical fast fashion um, and so that's probably my next going to be one of my next talking points um, when I'm out, uh, it, you know, at these events. The other thing is, you know, I mean, it would be remiss of me to not mention Brexit through this uh, discussion. Mm. Um, but one of the things that's very interesting about Brexit, regardless of which way anyone voted, is that uh, it has shone a light on the imbalance of our economy because you know, we, we are sort of overly weighted to financial services. It's about 10, 11% of GDP. And our manufacturing um, industry has, has dwindled over time. So I think one of, the, one of the opportunities that we have right now is, given that there is a spotlight on manufacturing, and also this coincides with the fact that the consumer is now uh, demanding product quicker and quicker and quicker, is that it no longer probably will be sustainable in some respects to to have such long supply chains. You can't have your product sitting on a boat from China for six weeks because if you're showing a piece at London Fashion Week, your customer's not going to say, I'll wait six, nine months for that. They're saying, if you're showing it to me, I want it now. Mm. So will manufacturing come closer to home? And you mentioned earlier about finding the skill set, and that is difficult um, you know, and if we do see restrictions on immigration, then, you know, getting great machinists will be difficult because there hasn't been the investment in manufacturing, certainly not in the fashion industry. 
you know, when I was looking for apprentices for, 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 for machining, it was so difficult to, to find someone who wanted to be a machinist and didn't want to be a fashion designer because mm. it's not presented as an option at school. So I think we might actually see a change in the approach to manufacturing. We've got a great opportunity to do that, I think. Um, so that, I'm hoping, will, will, will be an interesting talking point going forward when I'm doing my next events uh, to see where that can, that can lead. That is very interesting, and oh, it could be a, a cheering up point, um, mm. at least for some of the papers. It seems like a bit of despair at the moment. So, yes, you know, yes. I mean, it, I think it was ninety percent of the fashion industry were were remainers. Mm. Uh, but I think one, you know, one of the, you know, one of the key risks is, you know, certainly for those, uh, you know, manufacturers that are that are that are making product in the UK is that a, that a lot of a lot of the machining talent has come from Eastern Europe. So. All of a sudden, if those shutters come down, that would be that would certainly be a negative for the industry. I think exactly. Mm. Uh, so, Heidi, thanks again for being here on the show. Where can people find you? Uh, you can find us at uh, rosenwillard.com, and we are on uh, Twitter, and we're on Facebook, and we're on Instagram, and it's all Rosenwillard. So, if you look for Rosenwillard, you'll find us. Um, but yes, that's where we're found. And if anybody wants to visit the studio, we're in South Bermondsey. You are everywhere. <laughs> uh, we'll pop those in the show notes. Um, so be sure to check Rose and Willard out, whether on the internet or pop along to their studio. Um, we'll be back to normal with Tom back at the helm next week on the show. But for now, thanks as always for tuning in. Heidi Raymond there, really working hard to change the way in which the fashion industry has operated for so long with uh, with her business, Rose and Willard. Fascinating stuff. And thanks very much for Vix for jumping in the seat this week. Um, really well done. Thank you for that. Uh, as Vic said, as Heidi said, all the links and the details about the business, uh, head over to the website betterbusiness.show and you'll find those links uh, to Rose and Willard's uh, various social accounts in our accompanying show notes. Now, as I mentioned in the outset of today's show, we've got a brand new segment which is going to play out over the next next few weeks, really. Uh, we've been working with the guys at Terrafinity, uh, an international consultancy that works with companies to help them develop leadership in ecological and social and, and business value. And part of that works, uh, part of the work we've been doing with them culminates today in the launch of a brand new series of ebooks, uh, which offer thoughts, uh, provocations and big ideas for how we might create a sustainable future on a planet of 9 billion people. Now it took hundreds of thousands of years for the world to reach a billion inhabitants and then it took just another 200 years to grow by a factor of 7. And in less than 30 years today's population of 7.3 billion people is going to swell again to around 9.7 billion people. And it's a problem. It's a problem if we don't understand the scale of the challenge and organise ourselves differently. And welcoming the arrival of 9 billion people on planet Earth, rather than fearing their arrival, demands big solutions. And we know that because that's something we've been exploring week in, week out on The Better Business Show with our various guests. Um, you know, this is what the podcast is designed to do, to present big ideas and encourage our listeners to kind of take these nuggets of wisdom back to your own businesses and organisations. But in the face of you know, scarce resources, warming climate, erratic weather, forced migration, that widening gap between those that, that have and those that don't, 
fostering the conditions that would enable people to thrive is a challenge that requires audacious new thinking. So we asked Joss Tantrum, the founding partner of Terrafinity, to share with us his best big ideas, and that's what he's going to do this week and for the next four weeks. So here's Joss with part one of his big ideas, this time on discounting the discount rate. We know that a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. The adage works well, and it makes sense for a hunter-gatherer. But does it also hold true for a globalised species seeking a sustainable future? Under some circumstances, might the bird in the hand actually be worth less than a larger number of birds which are potentially available but currently out of reach? Does the value proposition change at four birds in the bush, at six or at ten? Such questions abound as we focus upon one of the most fundamental challenges to the achievement of a sustainable and prosperous future the lack of a functional economic mechanism to help us positively value that future. Our financial measures predominantly focus upon the value of the immediate. There is of course a certain logic to valuing today more highly than we value next week or beyond. The present actually exists, for the sake of argument, while next week is only a logical probability. In any case, even if we could be sure that next week will exist, we have no idea what might happen between now and then. What new technologies would transform the opportunities we might have to catch birds, make bird substitutes, change our dependency on birds, etc. A consideration of future value is a key part of any investment decision, financial planning or accounting process. An amount of money in your hand can be considered as definitively real, in as much as money is ever real, whereas money in the future is always considered to be less valuable as it is far more notional and conditional upon circumstances. This is referred to in terms of the discount that future value would have when set against its value now, the net present value. The mechanism for calculating this reduction of value over time is the discount rate, a seemingly innocent and rational accounting technique. The discount rate is perhaps the most significant reason why we find it so hard to invest in a sustainable future. Some approaches exist which allow us to value future outcomes, yet each is substantially constrained by the deadening effect of the discount rate. Cost-benefit analysis, for instance, is the main vehicle used for assessing the likely financial outcomes of different courses of action. It was used by Lord Stern to calculate that the cost of a transition to a lower carbon economy were a fraction of those of dealing with the implications of constrained climate change. Discounting future value makes great sense from many things, but it also projects a restraint on forward planning that restricts ad adequate investment in sustainable change. Like so many aspects of economics and accounting, it is intensely logical and useful within a very specific frame of reference. If that frame of reference shifts, then logic would dictate a reconsideration of its utility. The frame of reference for the discount rate has definitively shifted. <laughs> Economics, finance and accounting may not have developed mechanisms to compound value over time, as noted because the future doesn't exist yet. However, it's conceivable to imagine a social and economic architecture that would innately involve an ability to compound the future. There are a couple of possible ways to increase future value and therefore encourage behaviour which pays off over the long term. These are, firstly, for there to be a purpose to capitalism. This solution is exquisitely easy to express, though perhaps rather harder to achieve. We need to introduce a long-term purpose for economic activity. In addition to being financially and personally worthwhile for individuals to participate in, 
economic activity should make a manifest contribution to the achievement of both healthy and thriving ecosystems and a global human population of 9 billion capable citizens. With these goals in place, it would be relatively easy to compound value, to judge behaviour by its contribution towards these goals, asking the question, are these activities likely to achieve or undermine our sustainable destination? Just as investors currently, in theory, assess the likelihood of a company achieving its stated aims and value them accordingly, so this could be done in the context of a shared long-term goal. Secondly, long money and short money, changing the rules of money. This refers to ideas which either change the conception of money itself or which alter the rules that are applied to it. One such approach to the rules of money could be create long money and short money. Short money would have a use-by date and be spent on day-to-day -day things. Long money would be more suited to infrastructure investment and projects with a long-term or common good payoff. The mechanism for creating such distinctions exists. It is called demurrage. It is a reverse interest rate and refers to a cost levied for holding or owning money for a given period. Applying demurrage universally would naturally discourage people and organisations from sitting on money and encourage its circulation or investment as long money, which would be inherently more useful for the common good. A practical example of this type of thinking is in the area of complementary currencies, which have been used in reality across the world in order to achieve a range of rather amazing things. A pioneer a pioneer of alternative currencies is Bernard Littayer. His books and websites give a number of incredibly inspiring and creative examples as to how reconceptualising money can change the world and in many cases already has. The discount rate dominates and dictates an unsustainable future because, surprisingly or not, humanity doesn't have a plan. As a species, we're old enough and dangerous enough not to be blundering around without a destination and a plan by which to get there. A common direction is not dictatorship, communism or even collectivism. It is simply an intention to survive, and perhaps even to thrive over the coming decades. Our current mode of capitalism is no less collectivist than what I propose. It defines shared modes of behaviour, management, legality and value. However, current capitalism lacks a definable and constructive plan for the prosperity of our species or planet over the long term. This is an issue which is manifestly worth addressing, as it is clear that the demand is there. Most of humanity is keen to ensure a viable and successful future for themselves and their loved ones. Likewise, our conceptions of the meaning and purpose of money are no more fixed in stone or incapable of change than any other systems, though they may have more inertia. Money is a tool, a means by which we signify value and facilitate exchange. Valuing the long-term success of our species should certainly be worth something, and perhaps it is time we considered the role that our means of exchange could have in achieving that success. The forthcoming challenges of sustainability should spur our action so that we might design ways to overcome the barrier of the discount rate and work towards building a greater future value than our limited financial mechanisms currently allow us to conceive. Joss Tantrum there with part one of his big ideas and provocations for a sustainable future. The Towards 9 Billion ebook series is out now and can be downloaded for free at the Terrafinity website. Just head over to www.terrafinity.com uh, where you'll find the link to the ebooks on the homepage there. We'll put the link in today's show notes as well, but I highly recommend that you go and download those books. There's five of them to download. They really are a great read and loads and loads of great ideas in there from, from Joss and, and Dominic Tantrum. Uh, from Terrafinity. So we'll have more of Joss next week and the subsequent weeks after, um, so look out for that. 
Anyway, that's it for another week. Uh, thanks again for tuning in. Please don't forget to subscribe via iTunes. is probably the easiest way or on SoundCloud. Uh, we'll be back again next Monday. So until then, goodbye. <laughs>